Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Now, let's move into the sermon, but let me ask you a question. Do you ever think of the letters in the New Testament as being the pastoral care of Paul? And I think that the answer is no. I think most of us look at Scripture as being sort of a a sacred text. So that when we read it, when we listen to it, we kind of, our eyes glaze over, we yawn, and we feel disconnected from it, except on a certain level, we all say that we have real passion for God's Word. But I want you to understand that every word of Scripture has a context. It has a person a group of people, a city, a particular place, and it has people in it by name. And one of those names, two of those names, are Yodea and Syntyche, who when he writes the Philippians, he says, I plead with Yodea and Syntyche to agree with one another in the Lord. Now, What kind of uh, uh, nastiness prevailed between those two women for them to make it into the book of Philippians? I mean, think about it. Yesterday, a bunch of us were doing some leadership talking, and we talked about two, two women who don't like each other, or one woman who doesn't like the other one. You know, that, that's what elders do, <laughs> you know? And so the Apostle Paul is writing a church. He says, I plead with you to plead. The Apostle Paul pleads. How often does the Apostle Paul plead? Usually it's, heaven forbid. But when it comes to two women disagreeing, he's reduced to pleading. <laughs> now, there's another man I want to mention. And his name is Alexander, the metal worker. And what does the Apostle Paul say about Alexander, the metal worker? He said, he has done me my charm. You imagine your name being listed in the sacred canon of Scripture as a man who did the Apostle Paul much harm. It's awful, isn't it? This man that was beaten and beaten and stoned and stoned and shipwrecked and shipwrecked and laughed at and scoffed at and scorned by those those snotty Corinthians. But Alexander the metal worker has done me much harm. Isn't that something? And I bring it up because it shows how pastoral the Bible is. Nobody ever had to wonder who the Apostle Paul was talking about and to. 
it had a context. And the more you believe that his letters have a context, which means most of the New Testament has a context, the more you realize this, the more helpful Scripture is going to be to you as you read it. Because you're going to read yourself in every verse. As you read the verse, you're going to say, hey, that's me. You know? And, and, and you're not going to resent the Apostle Paul because you know it can't be you. But you're going to know, that's me. I always tell people that you, every time you preach, you should begin by trying to get them angry. Because until they're angry, they don't realize what Scripture means. <laughs> now, of course, that's hyperbole. But any time you open up God's thoughts and they're as high as the heavens are above the earth and your thoughts, don't you think there should be some conflict? <laughs> if God's thoughts are higher than the heavens are above the earth and your thoughts, don't you think there should be some conflict between you and the word of God? <laughs> or do you look at his rabbit's foot? You just kind of rub it and go home. Come on. The Bible is contextual. It is personal. It names names. And when you come to it, you should see yourself in every word, every sentence, every paragraph, every chapter, every book. You should see yourself everywhere in Scripture. And everywhere you see yourself, it should be improving you. Okay? And so this morning we have a very helpful text, okay? This is the word of God, and it's eternally true. Romans 6, 15 to 18. What then? I mean, even that. You know, what person would sit down to write an historic text? And in the historic text would write the, the interjection, what then? I mean, it's not dignified, right? What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. You see, this is helpful, isn't it? What then? You know, you can feel the Apostle Paul's making fun of you. What then? You're like, me? Yeah, you. Shall we sin? (coughs) Because we're not under law, but under grace. May it never be. Now, listen, this is fatherly. This is not matronly, motherly. This is fatherly. What then? Shall we sin? This is why I say that no woman can teach the classics to junior high and high school boys. Because they'll reduce them to, like, pat the, pat the rat or pat the bunny, you know. By nature, a woman is going to take the rough edges off man. Well, the Apostle Paul is not a woman. Has this escaped your notice? Is the Apostle Paul a woman? No, he's not a woman. No. And so the Apostle Paul has what? Rough edges, elbows. No woman has elbows. Unless you're in a Peter Paul Mary concert, you just yell boo and your wife is Mary Lee. Pew. <laughs> It was because they were talking about homosexuality being Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ that was crucified. And I had to do something. And guess what? My wife got an elbow and hit me with it. 
But she loved me at that moment. That was her way of showing it. Now listen, the Apostle Paul's not a woman. And this statement in this verse is, starts with an interjection. Uh, knock, knock. Interrupting cow. You know the joke, right? You all know it. Anybody not know it? Oh, you don't know it. Okay. Knock, knock. Interrupting cow. Moo! <laughs> now you know the joke. Okay. <laughs> And this is an interruption, an interjection. This is interruptive. What then? Okay? He's a man, he has elbows, he has sharp edges, and he's shocking you. What then? And then he says, shall we sin? He's got your attention with the what then. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you remember... A few weeks ago, when we were looking at chapter 6, verse 1, you'll remember that this section of, of, the, of the letter to the Romans is moving from the doctrine of justification to sanctification. He has hammered home the fact that nobody is saved by the works of the law. Nobody is saved because they don't litter. Nobody is saved because they don't commit adultery. Nobody is saved because they give money to the poor. Whatever work of the law that you want to cite, nobody is saved because of the works of the law. Why? Because it's hopeless, because the law is absolutely deadly to every man who has ever lived other than Jesus. There is not one man who can ever stand in the presence of a holy God. Isaiah couldn't stand. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And the first five chapters hammer home the fact that you are not saved by the law. The law kills you. The law was given that sin may increase. Why? So you will despair of your self-righteousness. And you will throw yourself at God for mercy. The first five chapters. And so he hammers home the fact that you are not saved by the law. You are not under the law. You despaired of the law. The law did its work. It led you to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And so you're not under law. You're under grace, the grace of Jesus Christ. But inevitably when this is taught, what happens is we're squirrely. All of us are squirrely. You know, we just are always trying to find that crevice that, that our sin can dwell in, you know? And we also need some justification for the sin, and so we come up with explanations. We're squirrely. We're always hiding. And you say, well, I thought you were saved. And I say, yes, I'm saved. But when we get to chapter 7, you're going to hear that there yet remains in us a... 
law of sin and death. He's writing to Christians. A law, a principle, a deep-rooted principle of sin and death in us. Okay? So when I say we're squirrely, I'm not denying that we are Christians, most of us. I am saying that we try to find sneaky ways to escape accountability with God. And so what we do is we take the fact that the Apostle Paul has just said a few verses ago, we're not under law. And immediately we say, I'm not under law. And so I think I'll sin that grace may abound. But of course we all know that the Bible says, shall we sin that grace may abound? Heavens, no! And so we never say, I think I'll sin that grace may abound. Because we're sneaky and we know the Bible actually addresses those words, so we have to come up with different words that don't sound like that because then people would be scandalized. And so how do we today say, I think I'll sin that grace may abound? How do we do that? I want to talk about two ways. Number one, I want to talk a little bit about dispensationalism. Dispensationalism owned the evangelical conservative Christian church in America across the 20th century. Uh, two of the chief influences of dispensationalism were Dallas Theological Seminary and uh, the Plymouth Brethren, okay? And what dispensationalism did, and it, you know, the people who were dispensationalists did many good things. They certainly had a high view of Scripture and argued for the authority of Scripture, and I could go into many things. But central to their system was an atomizing of the canon of Scripture, breaking it up into very small parts that ended up allowing them to feel like they controlled God's Word. Now, listen, this is my judgment. I grew up in a hotbed of dispensationalism in a church of dispensationals, and so you can dismiss my judgment, but it's not because I haven't been around dispensationalists, okay? Um, and so they will take the Old Testament, they'll break it up. They'll take the New Testament, they'll break it up. They'll take this period and say, that goes then, and this is that, and she was those, and those were that. And if you look at some old dispensationalist books, which I used to have one, you open it up and you will find mind-bogglingly complicated charts of where everything is supposed to go. It's, it's like a mother run amok, you know, in your bedroom, telling you how to clean it up, you know. And they have these lines and these lines and these names and these dates and a boom, 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 boom. And the sweet thing about it is when you get done looking at it all, you're cross-eyed and you say, well, then the heck with it. Because it's so complicated, you can't understand it. And you know that some of these periods, the law actually applies, and some of these periods, the law doesn't apply. And you may not be able to give all the explanations of when it is and when it isn't. But all you need to know is that there are some periods that some tough parts of Scripture simply don't apply to you anymore. And isn't that nice? Are you all with me? Now, those of you dispensationalists, don't hate me. Just let me keep talking, okay? Um... I was in a pastor's meeting. We had a weekly, during Lent, we had a weekly Wednesday night uh, service of worship in which we would speak in each other's churches. And there was a dear brother of mine who had come to town, and he and I were very close. And every year we had to decide what texts we would preach through. 
So this year, somebody proposed that we preach during Lent, which is a period of repentance, that we would preach through Jesus' woe statements to the religious leaders of his time. And I was flabbergasted when this other pastor, who went to Dallas, okay, he said, no, that's not for the church age. And I just looked at him and was like, dude, seriously? Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. You go across heaven and earth to win a single convert and then turn him into twice the son of hell you are yourself? Well, I'm so relieved that doesn't apply to me. (laughs) Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You whitewashed sepulchers. You make a big show of making the outside clean. You whitewash it, right? Any of you been dairy farmers whitewashing, you know, the milk parlor? You whitewash it. Underneath is, is all the dead men's bones. Underneath is all the dung of the cows. And isn't that nice? It doesn't apply to me. I mean, come on. There's not a statement in the woes that doesn't apply to me. You know, you never lift a finger. You lay God's law on other men's shoulders, and then you never lift a finger to help them bear it. Do you know how many times I think about this in my work? Am I lifting a finger to help them with what I've told them they need to do? Come on. This is dispensationalism. And so again and again, and in some of his worst expressions, what they end up doing is they end up saying that the God of the Old Testament was a God of justice and wrath, and the God of New Testament is a God of grace and mercy. God is God, and he does not change. God was not showing his wrath and justice in the Old Testament and shows his mercy and long-suffering in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he does not treat us according to our sins as we deserve. He knows that we're weak, that that we're made of flesh. Uh, Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. Are you kidding me? Does that sound wrathful and justice And then you go to the New Testament, and remember, the New Testament, God, is a, he, he's showing a, it's a different dispensation, okay? And you go to the New Testament, it's a different dispensation. We're all so relieved it's such a, dis, a different dispensation, right? Okay? And then, bam, there go Ananias and Sapphira. Well, what's wrong? I mean, somebody's gotten confused on their dispensations. <laughs> Come on, people. We're squirrely. We will always find a way to escape the weight of God and his word. Do you understand this? And so we all have to smell a rat with each other and with ourselves. Does this make sense to you? We should not trust ourselves. If we come up with a system of interpretation that allows us to to escape into the unbearable lightness of being and to call that Christianity? No, no, we don't do that. We don't do that. 
Now, some of you are probably irritated at this, at what I've said, and I don't blame you. Um, as I say, it owned the 20th century in America. This is the system. Many of you spent many years in churches that you were taught this. But it's not true. It's not true. The Bible coheres because the author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. And I admit that it's very different to know the degree to which the Old Testament and New Testament have continuity and the degree to which they have discontinuity. Edwards said it's the most difficult problem in theology. And that's why we argue over baptism. It's why we argue over the sacraments, because to what degree are the sacraments the same in the Old Testament? To what degree are they different? And so I'm not trying to be simplistic about this, but if this is taught in such a way that it allows us to not fear God, no. And can't we admit that what the legacy we've received from the 20th century American church is a legacy of the absence of the fear of God. I don't think anybody can argue with that. I just don't. Now, let me get personal, okay? Because at this point, most of us are willing to rethink our theological system so that we restore the fear of God. We're all on board with that. But let me talk to you about another way that we sin that grace may abound. Many of us have been seduced by the power of victimhood in American culture such that we tell God that he has to accept us the way we are. And we know we say that to God because we say that to the elders. When the elders come to us and talk to us about a sin or a failure or something that we don't do that we should, what we say is, well, my mama, my mama don't love me. My papa never loved me. I never knew my dad. My mama was an adulterer. My dad was an alcoholic. <clears throat> I'm short and fat. I'm tall and thin. I have acne. I can't grow a beard. I'm black. I'm white. I don't have a college degree. I'm tone deaf. I'm colorblind. And all of these special places we hold with the firmness of the word of God. And they are our strong, strong position, and we use them to oppress everybody around us. I'm single. I'm retired. I'm old. You know? I have a cowlick. And listen, people. God will not excuse you when you stand before the judgment seat of God and you try to balkanize the human race and to say what special liability you had. Now, hear me carefully. It does not matter who your father was. It does not matter what your husband is like. It does not matter what anybody did to you. What matters is that you live by faith and you grow in conformity to Jesus Christ. And don't you dare tell me that your special position 
causes you to just live in grace. No, 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 no. Now, I can imagine some of you who are more perverse than I am leaving this place and saying, you know what Pastor Bailey said? He said it doesn't matter that I was abused by my father. And you know, if they said that, that would actually be correct, wouldn't it? That's what I said. I mean, clearly that's what I implied. Everybody there with me? Right? But now I've actually said it. Okay, you want me to? Okay, here it comes. It does not matter that your father abused you. There. Okay, I said it. But if you have the eyes and ears of faith, what you know I'm saying to you is not that I don't care, not that I won't cry with you, not that I won't comfort you, not that I won't explain to your husband that he needs to be gentle and tender with you in a way that most husbands can be clueless about. Are, are you all with me? In other words, we live with each other's victimhood more precious to us than it is to them. That's good victimhood. That's why I believe actually in affirmative action. That's why I believe that there should be a path to citizenship. Come on, people. And it's because we're Christians. We take personally the liabilities of everyone around us. That's what it means to be a Christian. We love our neighbor. That's my daughter. I paid her. I don't know who that was, and I didn't pay her. (laughs) And that makes me just a little uncomfortable. (laughs) But listen, guys, I'm not making any political statements. What I'm saying is, in America today, we use our weaknesses and our suffering to beat up on other people. And we have a whole class of citizens in America today who are living off their neighbor, who are men who are fully capable of working, and who are not educated, and they're on disability. And it's awful for them, and it's awful for their neighbor, it's awful, it's corrosive to our government, it is corrupting our whole nation. And I know somebody's going to say to me, well, don't you believe in disability? Of course I believe in disability. And I believe in it so much that you have none. I mean, come How many people are on disability today who are completely able-bodied? I mean, yeah, they have some back problems. Listen, if you have a day, you want me to list my problems for you? My wife tried to talk to me about a problem recently, and she said, well, do you see it as a problem? Oh, man, I've been waiting for my wife to ask me that question because I just immediately opened up to her a whole realm of problems that I die under. If you want to listen to my problems, I got problems. And I think a number of them would qualify as a disability. A disability that might take me out of the pulpit and put me in the bathroom cleaning toilets again. Listen. We love our neighbor, and so we are unbelievably sensitive to sexual abuse, to incest, to alcoholism, to adultery, to divorce, to corrupt judges. We are more concerned about it than those who suffer under it. 
Because the people who suffer under it know that God has called them to take up their cross and follow him. And that he has commanded them to not let the root of bitterness corrupt many. And so they're so sweet about their suffering. And I am not. Do you understand how this works? I am not sweet about their suffering. I will go talk to their father, trust me. (laughs) And so will every one of our pastors and elders, and that's what we spend our time doing. Now, what then? Are we to sin that grace may abound? And the answer is what? No, no. The answer actually is, well, let me go back and and explain to you the first five chapters of this book because it's a very complicated issue, the degree to which we're under the law and we're not under the law, we're under grace, we're not under grace. Now, you see there are three uses of the law, and if we... Yeah, yeah, that's right. The Apostle Paul does not argue in the least. He doesn't argue. He says, may it never be. And once again, it's a man. It's not a woman. May it never be. There's no argument. None. Listen. Many of you are, I'm afraid, caught up. Well, maybe not many, but a number of you are caught up in being victims. Stop it. It does not honor God, and it is not grace. Have faith. Have faith to suffer. Have faith to grow in your suffering. Stop using your suffering as an excuse. Grow. And if you ask God to grow you, he will. I can testify to this. Many of us can testify that when we stop complaining and stop excusing ourselves to other people, we actually grow. It's amazing. And it's because of the power of the Holy Spirit. There's nobody who has suffered in any way who is beyond God's grace. Okay? And so trust God for your own sanctification. That's where we're headed. And the next thing we're going to hit, and I will stop here, but the next thing we're going to hit is this whole section that has to do with slavery. Okay? You see what comes next is, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey? So where the Apostle Paul is going now is, he's going to rub your nose in slavery. And what's so ironic is that the Bible translators today Oh, man, they just don't want to translate it slave. But if you don't translate it slave, for heaven's sakes, it lacks all the pungency the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit meant it to have. (laughs) You know? Here's an idea. Let the Holy Spirit speak to us, please. The Greek word is doulos. Do you know what my wife does now, what, 70 times in this church? The minute the woman goes into labor, she calls us day or night, and guess what she does? She says goodbye. And she goes wherever that birth is happening, and she's a doulos, a doula. And she is a slave to the needs of the woman. 
It's not about her. She has no no personhood. She exists simply to do what that woman needs. She's a doula. She is a slave to that woman who's doing the hardest work she'll ever do in her life. There should be somebody there that that woman trusts. And it certainly isn't going to be her husband. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. A slave exists to fulfill the desires of another person. That's it. The word diakonos is what? The word diakonos is servant. Doulos is slave. Diakonos is servant. You feel the difference? They have an overlapping meaning, but let me tell you, slave is not bondservant. You know, that's how everybody wants to translate it now, minister, bondservant, or, you know, and it is a bondservant, I know, but we impart to bondservant something less than slavery. And so it's not a good translation because it takes the edge off it. And what the Apostle Paul is now going to do is he's going to say to you, look, you don't have three masters and you don't live in a demilitarized zone. You have one master, and it's either God or it's Satan. You are either a slave of the lusts of your flesh and the sin, or you are a slave of righteousness. And those are the only two categories of people. Okay? What then? Should we sin that grace may abound? What then? Should we sin that you know, that God can show his mercy more and more and more because he's so awful and yet I love him just the way he is. (laughs) You know, may it never be. Don't you know, you're either a slave of God or you're a slave of Satan. Kierkegaard's either or. We need that restored to us, not his philosophy, but his either or. Either you're a slave of righteousness or you're a slave of death. You hear that, Dan? And so, be a slave of righteousness. And there's no middle place. Okay? There's no middle place. Don't fool yourself. We'll go back into this in a couple of weeks. Uh, Now we have communion. And so if we could have the elders come forward, please.